for the word of the Lord. The uh, Bible readings and sermon have been sort of diced and interwoven today, so we're going to have three more Bible readings, um, but I'll have a brief introduction as we do so. As we continue our series uh, in Lent leading up to Easter, looking at the first five chapters of that amazing book, the book of Revelation, which I've called Then and Now, Now and Then. At first, the book of Revelation can seem like totally another world, almost another reality with its imagery and all its illusions. But when we begin to get below the surface, we see that the world is not that different to the world as uh, we experience it. It's based in uh, what was then known as Asia Minor, uh, a Roman province which is modern Western Turkey. And it largely is right at the cutting edge between Europe and the Eastern world, and always had been. In earlier days, it had been under strong Persian influence. So if you remember all those big battles between uh, Sparta and all those big battles that would go on, that would be between the Persians who were largely uh, occupied in this area of what is now Western Turkey, heading over towards Greece and trying to attack those Greek city-states. That all changed after Alexander the Great, where uh, Alexander the Great, a Macedonian, took Greek culture and swept right over in the other direction, never lost a battle, and went right across both this area initially and then right across to Afghanistan to the foothills of India and took Greek culture, what we know as Hellenism. And ever since then, the culture has been a mix of Eastern and Greek culture. And then along came the Romans. And the Romans, as my father once said, and remembering he was a professor of ancient history, so it must be authoritative, he said the Romans never had an original idea in their life, but they knew a good idea when they could see it. So they grabbed that and said, oh, we'll have that culture. So the Romans then sort of claimed that Greek culture and made it their own. Actually, what Romans could do was both the art of government and the art of terrorism. They were a military dictatorship. Work with us and you will have peace and we will do the right thing by you. Cross us and we will see how quickly we jump on you. And this is the world in which the early churches, who had come to understand the teachings of Jesus were beginning to take root. So the seven churches follow a postal route. We saw Ephesus last week, up to Smyrna, Pergamon and Thyatira today. Then our future weeks, next couple of weeks, we can look at Sardis, Philadelphia and then Laodicea. And today is going to be a bit of a quick trip. I noticed, as it happens, I was looking online last night, you can do a tour of the seven churches. There's quite a few companies that do that, coming out of Ephesus mainly. And they will do Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira in one day. That's the one-day bus trip. As it happens, buckle up, because that's what we're doing today. Now, I want to try and keep to the big picture. There's a whole lot of rabbit holes we could very happily go and explore and see where we dig down and end up. But I'm not going to do that. But we will look at Smyrna, Pergamon and Thyatira and see the types of issues that were distinctive around each of those towns. We tend to do what I've just done, a sweeping generalisation about areas and assume that each location is pretty much the same. 
Even within Adelaide, we know that's not the case. We'll be pretty quick to say, well, South Australia is not the same as Western Australia or Perth and or Victoria or the other states. We say, no, we've all got our own distinctive character. And so it is true of these cities that we're going to tour through. And the information that we see in Revelation, uh, we're finishing off chapter 2 today, does reflect something of that local culture. But I described how it was uh, Revelation now and then, then and now, to show some similarities. In, uh, as I was reflecting on this last night, I remember a, a, a fun conversation with some good friends of uh, Fiona and ours in a home group we were part of many years ago at St Michael's Wollongong, which is close to the BHP and all the engineering works. And I still remember a conversation, uh, a friend of ours, I won't name them just for Graven, cleared it with them but um, uh, the husband came home he's an engineer at that stage a young engineer and he's, he, he was full of confession to his wife when he came home from work one day she was had a big smile on her face and she said he'd gone to a work lunch it was a work you know all the other engineers were going so if would he go and he discovered to his horror this work lunch with a meeting was held in a restaurant that had waitresses with very very sheer tops and nothing else so he was full of like I had no idea you know but (laughs) this is what work did everything else and suddenly you navigate that space and think through is it okay just to say look it just happened it's work you just go along with it where do you draw a line and saying no I can't do this that sort of pressure was exactly what was happening in all these different cities that uh, as we'll see, there's a lot of religious practice. There's no separation of religion and sort of a, the secular politics in the world or business. In the ancient world, it is all one, totally one. And it wasn't just that there was one religion. There was multitudes of religions, and you had to pick which ones the authorities were expecting you to observe and all the expectations that would go with it. So I'll come back to a little bit later. But what I will say is that a lot of those business meetings, in inverted commas, or the way in which you would be socially connected, which in smaller cities you really need to be, um, would happen over dinner parties called symposium. And in a symposium, uh, it would start with uh, drinking. That's the symposium part of it. And then some fine foods. And then after that's concluded and the meal was over, the women of the house were usually expected to depart. And then they'll bring in the courtesans, who were the female entertainers. And they'll have a clowns and other various different uh, people who were specialised in their entertainment. And they would put on entertainment that was close to outrageous over the dinner party. And that's how you build friendships. And friendships were so important in the ancient world to be well-connected. And through that, you could then do business. So that's the world in which the early Christians were having to navigate. Where do we go with this? And the answer of where you draw a line wasn't clear. Nor had it been for the Jewish communities for the best part of 100 years as well. In some areas, some Jewish leaders said, well, you can... You can do most of that. It's just culture. You go to the gymnasium. You go and, you know, yes, they do all their athletics and they're naked and so on, but that's all part of what is normal. You enter into that. 
Others said, no, we've got to hold back and draw a line and we won't, we'll show that we are separate from all that. When it comes to taxation, it was also doubly complicated because there are periods in which the, um, the Jewish people had exemption from taxation and exemption from needing to worship the emperor because they recognised that the Jewish faith followed one God. Except some of the other Jews said, well, we're, we're okay with entering into a whole mix of, we're happy to worship the emperor as well as others. Very, very short story behind it is that there'd been a civil war, a war broke out back in Jerusalem from 66 through to 72, culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem and Masada. And the emperor said, that has cost us one heap of money having to defeat you Jews. You are now going to pay for it by a special tax. Then suddenly all these people found reasons to say, actually, no, that wasn't us. We're not not as Jewish as those. Other Jews were doing that. It's a complicated world to live in. And that's the world in which these letters are written. So first of all, Smyrna uh, is now the modern city of Izmir. Izmir. and it's a spectacular city. The buildings you see in the lower part of the screen are just in recent years. It's also one of the um, uh, primary cities that is the greening eco-transformation. So lots of parks and waterways are going through. Whereas we saw last week that Ephesus was the capital of the whole province and had the long claim to uh, Artemis and the um, claim to be the greatest city of the area, uh, where are we up to? Smyrna is on a little coast. So remember how I said last week the, the river in Ephesus was silting up and the boats couldn't go in, the harbour was suddenly becoming dysfunctional and suddenly their economy was wrecked. You go up and look at the Smyrna and you see it's actually right on the coast, perfect place for a harbour. And so uh, in ancient times um, it was a glamour city. It was the harbourside city it was regarded as uh, prosperous and as the up-and-coming city of all the right sort of connections, the high trade that could go with it. And uh, the modern city overlays where the ancient city was. Um, some of the ruins still remain there, and if you're into how the arches were put together, you'd love the area because it's got heaps of those arches that you just look at and think, how did they manage to do that? And do I trust that engineering enough to stand below those arches before? So that's the, the uh, modern area. They were renowned for being the birthplace of Homer, author of the Iliad and the Odyssey and so on, and a shrine, a big statue of Homer, because they could claim Homer. They were commercially prosperous. They were regarded as the most beautiful of all cities. There was a uh, first century um, travel writer called Strabo who toured around and wrote up commentaries on all the cities that he visited and that was his conclusion upon visiting uh, ancient Smyrna. It was circled by Mount Pegasus like a crown was the way it was described and they had strong early ties to Rome. Now in the first century pretty much everyone had to have ties to Rome. If you didn't have ties to Rome you were in a seriously Uh, vulnerable place but they were the early uh, advocates so back before Rome became great when Carthage and others were still prominent they were actually putting all their uh, stakes loyalty early ties to Rome and they really drove that they said 
we have an earlier claim of having been a special friend of Rome. And that's reflected by a significant decision in uh, 26 um, in the Common Era where there was a big, um, you, know, you know how the Olympics bid in for trying to become the city who has the right to hold the Olympics? Well, the ancient equivalent was to have the right to build a temple to the emperor and to be called the Temple Warden. And they won that bid in 26 over against Ephesus. And there was quite a high degree of the Smyrnans going yeah, to the Ephesians. We won that right. Ephesus caught up about 80 years later. So against that backdrop, there is a small and struggling church who are not well connected. And we should note one thing in particular as we look at these readings is that uh, persecution was beginning to build in quite a profound way. Alan's now going to bring us the uh, reading from Revelation verses 8 to 11, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, as we see these words to the, uh, the church in Smyrna, a um, couple of things we can note around it. First of all, even the reference to you'll be in prison for 10 days and may suffer uh, persecution in that period wasn't so much you'll be in prison for 10 days and then you'll be released. released. It was you're only imprisoned. There's two or three reasons to be in prison, but in particular... You were imprisoned during your trial period where you could be tortured and at the end of the 10 days you would then be potentially executed. And that became the reality for a number of leaders in the, of the churches in Smyrna. So we just have Jesus described from the one who is the first and the last. That's picking up the whole image of God that has been presented in Revelation who was there from the beginning to end. But this particular line is added, who died and returned to life. A number of the Smyrna Christians and their Smyrna leaders would be to lose their life. He commends them for being poor and suffering, yet you are rich, he says to them. In this wealthy, well-connected, commercially driven hub of a city, They did not have those resources. They were a minority group. Yet Jesus says, but actually you are rich. 
the spiritual richness that you have is much greater than anything that the world has to offer you. He doesn't rebuke them for anything. It's the, the starkest of all the seven churches. There's nothing. He says, I know this about you and you need to stop it. There is nothing that he names in that space. We saw this pattern last week. He rebukes them. Sorry, his exhortation is to keep faithful as pressure increases. And then comes his promise. And you will receive the crown of life. You will not experience what's described as second death. Not exactly sure, and remember I said that Revelation is an evocative text rather than one that tries to describe absolutely everything. But it's more the case, I think, in the second death here, and it's picked up a little bit later in Revelation as well. You may die physically, but you will never truly die. You will receive that immortality which only those in Christ receive. And they were sobering words for those who knew that they were about to go into a time where death could well be the case. And as there were no no rebukes, there were no warnings (laughs) included in this pattern. Some of you may have been following that list I gave last week, that table, to go through and to read it. It is quite striking that the smallest church here, the poor and suffering church, are encouraged. Now, this isn't the final word to be said to these churches. As we go through the seven churches, you know how sometimes in a movie, when they want to set a range of different characters in their context. You know, the first 10 minutes sometimes will visit different homes, different workplaces, people, different lives, and introduce you to their character and their context. And then the storyline continues. Well, the seven churches are a bit like that. We're being introduced to these different contexts, and we can see ourselves in that space. But we know that the message that's going to come after this, from Revelation 4 right through to 22 is speaking into the space to give them the assurance when it comes to power and authority and righteousness and justice and mercy, there is no one to compare than their faith of Jesus Christ. It is sobering to remember at this time when this letter was first performed, delivered, Polycarp, who had been a student of the Apostle John, and an early mentor to a young Irenaeus who went on to become one of the great church fathers. He later became the bishop of Smyrna and was martyred in the forum. Famously, he was said, you're 86 years old or you're an elderly man, said the uh, proconsul to him. Surely you could just say, I renounce my commitment to Christ and I'll follow and I'll worship Caesar. And he famously replied, for 80 and 6 years I've been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved him? Let's come now to the church at Pergamon. A few introductions. So we're going to continue on the journey. And now we're going inland and up country. Hill country. And it has a um, remarkable theatre on the hillside. Um, the steepest theatre that was known in the ancient world, would seat about 15,000 people. And at the bottom, the bottom right corner of the screen, um, there was a medical and health centre. It was one of the first 
uh, healing centres in the ancient world and a highly renowned one. People would travel from all around to go to the Asclepium. That's how it would have looked in uh, the first century. And you see that the lower part below the, um, the theatre is both a philosophical school as well as the, um, the Asclepion, the, the, he- the healing centre. Multiple temples. Um, the one up top, in the top left-hand corner, the, is the temple to Trajan. He was the emperor who immediately followed um, Domitian at the time of the first, first century. And notice this structure on the right-hand side, halfway down on the right-hand side. Uh, it is a, an altar... Um, that has been recreated in Berlin. So this is at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, uh, who have taken the parts that they were able to save. It was being destroyed and crushed for the stone properties back in the late um, 19th century and have recreated what this uh, structure looked like. And uh, that's how it would have been in its original context. It was a temple, an altar, to Zeus, where the biggest altar that is known in the ancient world would offer sacrifices, and people would be drawn into offering the sacrifice and the meat, then taking it back and having festivities as part of that celebration. And the frescoes on either side show that it has both Zeus and Athena on either side as the great uh, figures to be venerated, to be worshipped. Had one of the greatest libraries of antiquity, um, some Uh, Mark Antony, who later took control of it, reputedly actually took 200,000 books out of that library or parchments and scrolls and gave them to Cleopatra. You know, here's a nice wedding present, dear. Passes it on. Um, It has a a remarkable hilltop acropolis. That's what we saw in that picture with a steep theatre. The Asclepian was one of the two, uh, one of the greatest medical complex and sanctuary and a cult. Asclepius was the, uh, the god of healing that people would come to. And there were temples to Hera, Demeter, Athena, Dionysius, Zeus, Serapis, Isis and Osiris, the last three being uh, Egyptian uh, gods as well. And there were many white marble inscriptions and there's a reference to white, which is why I put it here for the reading. So against that backdrop... Uh, we can also note that Antipas, who's mentioned in this reading, is believed to be a Christian bishop of Pergamon um, who was believed to have been martyred in Pergamon in the late first century, the same time as this letter is being written. We should note that the word, just when you come to it in the hearing and the reading, the word witness becomes the word for martyr. The same same Greek word that in some contexts we describe as being a witness is now used as the word for martyr. Literally, it's what the word is, maturion. To witness to Christ could mean that you are then martyred for that commitment. Thanks, Alan. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you'd remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas. 
my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Same pattern has followed in each of these seven letters to the angel of the church in Pergamon from him who has the two-edged sword, which is a sign of power and of uh, perception. It actually happens that Pergamon uh, was a garrison city up on the hillside. There was uh, troops were based there. And, one of the, and the proconsul, um, who was the most powerful Roman official, is also uh, would reside in Pergamon. A sign of the proconsul is the sign of a two-edged sword because they had what's called the law, the power of the sword. They had the power to order execution or not. And it's a legal term that the Romans used. But here it is Jesus who's wielding the two-edged sword, but in a quite different way. Jesus commends the church in um, Pergamon for remaining faithful despite persecution. And it's not easy. They have been challenged within it. But their biggest challenges are coming from within. He rebukes them for tolerating sin and false teaching. Now, there's a reference there to Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, uh, Balaam, which is, actually goes back to the book of Numbers. Numbers 20 to 22 describes the account where Ahab uh, wanted to try and get Balaam to provide, um, convince the people of Israel to turn away from their worship of God and to, to, to adopt the practices that Abraham was wanting, sorry, Ahab was wanting from the surrounding peoples. And so the pressure was on to say, you don't need to observe all these laws. You can actually do, it's a lot more license to do what you like. The, the laws are just, you know, guidelines. And so Balaam eventually was successful by offering the people of Israel, especially the men, um, both great meals and banquets and uh, sexual opportunities and said this is all quite acceptable within our world, within our culture at the time. This is why I mentioned before around how that line between what is acceptable for those who are doing business and another set of rules, another culture, another set of freedom that the elite can enjoy. But if you don't do that, if you stand out against it, then suddenly you are excluded. So the exhortation comes, repent. You are being too drawn into that world and you are finding all sorts of reasons to justify it and you have some teachers in your midst who are saying, it's okay, it doesn't really matter. The promise is of hidden manner. 
and of a white stone or pebble with a name on it, which is a bit cryptic. And so we realise, first of all, that they are being drawn out of the markets. The cost for not doing business, the cost for not entering into that world, was means that they were being shunned. They're losing all their connections. And people were literally shutting up shop against them. The white stone, no one's exactly sure what is uh, alluded to there. Someone has pointed out that a lot of the engravings in uh, Pergamon are actually in a white marble. But I think the most likely cause, uh, symbolism behind the white stone, is that in that trial process, when people are being put to uh, test before a a court, and the court will be controlled by the elite. It's actually very similar to, I gather, some clubs. I've never been in that space, but you can be blackballed or not, where people will vote for you. And at the end of a trial in the Roman world here, the elite who are passing judgment on you would either put in a black stone or a white stone, whether you are found guilty or not. That may well be but the illusion behind it and saying that there's a the white stone is there. Christ is going to give it to you. And his warnings. Christ will make war against those who are being drawn into that wider culture of basically indulging what those dinner parties had to offer, if you like. Now, the dinner party is only one example of it, but remember, that was a major part of the social world is the... Uh, parts of the homes that were set aside only for the in crowd. And the mystery religions that we heard about would be meeting in homes and entering into the practices in those homes that were renowned for their uh, promiscuity and for their sense of uh, um, anything goes in that culture. Which brings us to the last of our, our bus trip for today. This is the afternoon league of the trip. I know you're in the bus. You're getting a bit weary at this stage. You know, take a quick drink, drink some water. Um, as we come to Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira does still exist, but it's a very small footprint in terms of ancient Thyatira within the city that is there. Um, the ruins are not anything um, particularly notable. But what they are known for in the ancient world was their production of purple dye, which was highly sought after. Now, the ancient world is similar to um, academia today. There's a whole story which I won't go into about the irony behind that. But uh, academia, depending on what your status is, you can either have a one-inch strip or a six-inch strip. You have to have a particular colour. And certain colours are reserved for those who have been the more elite in that space. You go to any academic graduation service, you'll see that played out. Which was wonderful when someone got a PhD in humility and was having to hear all that stuff being played around. Anyway... Enough said about that. Thyatira is renowned for their purple dye, which was the best colour. Only the senators and the elite senators could wear purple dye in their togas. And uh, so that was a highly thing. You might remember that Lydia in the um, uh, Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 16, when Paul visits Philippi, he comes across and his first convert there is Lydia, who was praying by the waters. She was a trader in purple dye from Thyatira. This was Lydia's hometown before she went on to Philippi. 
They are renowned for, uh, well, not particularly renowned, of the seven churches. They were the smallest and the politically least important. Uh, someone who was actually going around trying to find distinguishing things about seven churches came away saying, there's nothing particularly distinctive about Thyatira at all. Uh, their main purpose was as a defensive outpost for Pergamon. Um, so if the attacks were to come from the east towards Pergamon, they put an outpost and garrisoned some troops in Thyatira further out to try and uh, protect them. But in particular, the one thing that was renowned for Thyatira is that was basically that all trade unions, associations, guilds, no other city, this is uh, uh, picking up a comment from Strabo, but no other city seems to have had so many guilds as Thyatira. Coppersmiths, bronze workers, tanners, leather workers, dyers, workers in wool and linen, potters, bakers and slave dealers. Why is that an issue? Well, the guilds, that if you want to work in those areas, you had to be a member of the guild, otherwise you're blacklisted. The guilds then would actually say, we are picking as a guild which, who we will worship. And part of, high on their list of worship would be to show their, their worship to the emperor. So this is actually an inscription that's found in Thyatira that is dedicated to Titus, who followed Domitian as the emperor. Um, we can see that Titus followed the mission because you can only just see it. There's a few missing words there. And if you look at it really, 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 really closely, some words have been chiseled out. Actually, it was Domitian, his younger his brother, who was now out of favour. So when Domitian was dealt with, the instruction was told, okay, all those inscriptions to Domitian, quickly, go and knock the name off. Damnatio memoriae. Uh, so the guilds well, we wanted to do the latest who's in, who's out, and make sure they followed all that allegiance. In particular, this is another one that comes from a little bit later from Thyatira, is put up by the guild. They would fund these inscriptions and the worship that would associate it. If you have to be well-connected in trade, you need to be well-connected to the gods and to their patrons upon earth. So that culture is reflected in our final Bible reading from Revelation 2. Revelation 2, <clears throat> beginning at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now 
I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come to one of the most sobering warnings of these so far, to this smaller town and to the church in Thyatira, that the threat is not so much external but internal and some conflicted teaching. The language is uh, highly symbolic. There wasn't a teacher actually called Jezebel there. That's a symbolism used of a, a prominent leader in the church who is convincing people that the freedom to enjoy in the gospel opens up anything goes to the culture. And uh, most likely, we don't know for sure, she seems to be a, a socially well-connected um, female with prominence and with high status who enters into those symposium and those dinner parties, who goes to the mystery cults and those hidden secrets that are revealed in the mystery cults and said it's absolutely fine for us as Christians to, to be all part of that world. And the warning says, is, no, it is not. You must draw a line and you cannot commit yourself to give your allegiance, your loyalty to these other religions, these other gods. So whereas the previous one used the language of uh, Satan has a throne, that was in Pergamon, that was probably a reference to uh, the temple to Zeus and Zeus's throne. Here it may also be the um, indulgence of those mystery cults, those mystery religions. Who One who has eyes like a flame of fire, who actually sees there's nowhere to hide from this, who commends them for their love and faith and service and endurance. Actually, it's the opposite of Ephesus last year. Last week, we saw that they've lost the love they had at first. Here, many within the church in Thyatira are getting stronger and stronger in their love, faith, service and endurance. But he rejects, rebukes for those who have accepted this teaching and in particular, the pathway that has led for sexual immorality to indulgence most likely through those dinner parties, those symposium. His exhortation, repent, hold fast. His promise is that if you want to be well connected, this is how you're well connected, through the God of the nations, all tribes and languages, not through your, your human connections. And his warnings is that there are real world consequences if you persevere as Jezebel had been given a chance, this teacher to repent and was refusing to do so. So we draw a line at this stage. We're only halfway through our journey. We've got two more weeks to go, two churches next week. One we're going to finish up with Laodicea. But, and uh, so it's been a bit of a, 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 a quick buckle-up journey. But we need to see how this speaks into our world, the sort of choices, the questions. Where do we draw the line with our cultural movements and currents? 
Do we just say, look, anything goes as long as you, you, know, you basically love whatever, it's all good? Or do we recognise that there is a wisdom, there is instruction, as Psalm 19 said, that is life-giving. And if we ignore that, the consequences can be painful. But the promise that is held out consistently throughout all these messages is that do not let your faith waver from the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. And going back to the first one that we saw in Smyrna, he was dead and came alive again. He is the God of the resurrection. That is the light we have before us in our Lenten journey, that we can trust there is no one more worthy nor faithful or righteous to trust than our Lord Jesus. Amen. Over to the music team. Thank you, Paul.